pray. Here we are again, Lord, before you, under your word, eager to hear, cautious that we might misinterpret or misunderstand, hungry for your truth, thirsty for your grace. We need you, O Lord. You are the vine and we are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And apart from you, there is no way I could preach this sermon today. So I ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and help? Give me a thousand tongues, if necessary, to proclaim my Redeemer's praise. And give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to your church today. And we'll thank you for it and give you praise in the name of our blessed Savior and only God, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, every storm that you encounter is designed, designed to reveal your dependency, to exalt Christ's supremacy, and to enrich you with sovereign joy. Those of you who know me well know that I love reading Christian biography. I love to read the stories of Christian heroes of the past, their lives of faith, and they're so profoundly inspiring that whenever I read about men like Adoniram Judson and William Carey and David Brainerd and Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther and men like them and women like them, I always come away with, with a greater desire to become more faithful to the Lord than I have been in the past. I've always thought that if I could just cultivate the kind of faith that they had, that the Lord would use me in ways that he never used me before and maybe more than I had ever thought possible, if I could just become like them. But how exactly did these great men and women become the great men, men and women that they were? I can tell you this much, it wasn't by reading biography. <laughs> as much as I commend it to you, and it is helpful. I can tell you that while it's not biography, I, I can also tell you what it primarily is that the Lord uses to make you into a, a person of, I hate to say a person of faith because that is so abused. Someone who is devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the thing that God uses most, most powerfully and most effectively, are you ready? It's personal suffering. Sometimes the only thing that can break through our faith, faithless sense of self-sufficiency is the fury of a perfectly tailored storm designed by God to reveal our utter dependency upon Christ. We are always dependent on Christ, and sometimes we feel it. 
This is exactly what the disciples of Jesus needed by the time they reached this account of Jesus walking on water in John chapter 6. And so let's begin this morning. I have an awful lot to say, and we may need two hours, but we'll see. Let's, let's stand together and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, and beginning with verse 15. I will tell you as you are turning your pages, I just want to make a note here that the event about which we're going to read today took place immediately after Jesus fed somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 people with five small barley loaves and two small fish. And now let's read verse 15. So, the so points backward to the feeding of the 5,000. So, Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and, and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And so they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. And notice, just as a side note, how the story ends abruptly, which is indicative of Mark. His favorite word is immediately, immediately, immediately. In fact, his book ends the same way. It just stops. you got to love that. Well, little didn't, did the disciples realize that, they, that when they finished eating the scraps left over after the banquet in the wilderness and stood upon the shore of Galilee, that this delightful experience of that evening was about to be replaced by an event that was so terrifying that they would despair that they would ever reach shore alive. And so it seems appropriate to refer to this opening portion of this text as the calm before the storm. Just to give you a little insight on how my brain works backwards sometimes, when I looked at what I wrote earlier this week, it, it sounded funny because it actually read the clam before the storm. <laughs> that didn't seem to work. It was evening, and Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. But rather than setting up camp for the night, which is what we would have expected, Jesus got the, the disciples together and put them on a boat to cross over to the town of Capernaum. And that makes sense if you understand geographically there at the lake that Capernaum 
is Jesus' home base. It is also the place where Peter, James, and John were raised and, and from which they did their fishing. It might seem strange at first that Jesus would have sent his men away like this. It may have seemed a little better in terms of making sense to keep his disciples with him, especially after this monumental miracle. I mean, what a great opportunity for further ministry. The things they could have said, the people that they could have evangelized. But Jesus was resolute. His men needed to go. They needed to go. Evidently, Jesus had some trouble getting them into the boat. In Mark's account, and by the way, you could put a finger in Mark chapter 6, we're in John 6, but in Mark 6 is the other account, one of the other accounts of this, this narrative. In Mark's account, it says this, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. This is a strong expression indicating urgency and pressure. Jesus was pushing them, as it were, into the boat. The Greek says Jesus forced or compelled them to get into the boat. We can infer here that the 12 were reluctant for some reason. And Mark doesn't tell us why. Mark and Matthew and Luke don't tell us why. But Jesus, Jesus here in John, tells us what was going on. Chapter 6, verse 15. The reason that he was pressing them to go was because the crowd, watch this, the crowd intended to make him king by force. You see, their understanding of what the Messiah would be was still skewed. The disciples' view of what the Messiah would be was still skewed. They didn't understand who he was or why he came. They believed he was Messiah, but they didn't understand what Messiah was to be. And from what we know about the disciples, they would have thrown their lot in with the crowd. And so Jesus sent them away before any movement in that direction could gain any traction. What I want you to note here is that Jesus made his men get into that boat, though he knew perfectly well that he was sending them out into the face of a storm. He knew the storm was coming. He surely knew the storm was coming. I think that because, number one, that's what the story's about. And secondly, because Jesus is God. He's the creator of heaven and earth, whose providential rule over all things are God's instruments to bring him glory and bring the greatest good for his people. And the storm that was coming toward the disciples that night it was no exception. It, it kind of made me reflect back on the prophet Isaiah, through whom the Lord himself said, I am the Lord, there is no other. The one who forms light and creates darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You see calamity? You see trial? You see difficulty? Do not think for a moment that God is not in that. 
Now, I'm fully aware of the fact that there are a number of men and women in our church body who find themselves in a rather fierce storm at some level, and your pastor is one of them. But I'm here to tell you, beloved, that whatever kind of storm you may be experiencing right now, its source is not bad luck. It's not random happenstance. No, if you are a follower of Christ, every storm you encounter is divinely purposed for you. It is carefully measured for you. It is for your good and the glory of the one who made it. And the amazing thing is, and sometimes perhaps the frustrating thing is, that God doesn't explain what he's doing. You remember Job? Job pleaded with God. He wanted to take God to court. God, please tell me what is going on. You get to the end of the book, he never explains. So unlike the previous occasions when the disciples got into the boat, Jesus, rather than going with his men, chose to stay behind and take care of the, the crowds all by himself. That's not the point of this passage. I know it's not the point of the passage because John doesn't say anything else about that. He doesn't say anything else about the crowds. And so after bidding the people farewell, Jesus took the opportunity to hike up the local mountainside to be alone for a few hours with the Father in prayer. And we aren't told what Jesus prayed about, but we don't have to be told. We know what he was praying for. He was praying for his men. He just sent them into this storm. He's praying for them. We aren't told that, but it's, it seems implicit to me. He prayed for them, who knows how long, hours. Oh, church, I, I know that you were faithful to pray for one another. I know prayers are going back and forth. Even this morning, I received several people were texting me and saying, I'm praying for you, praying for you. I, re I received a phone call this morning from Uganda. And Dexter just wanted to say, brother, I'm praying for you. We do that. That's wonderful. We need to do more of that. We need to show up at each other's doors and, and pray for one another. Send texts, send emails, send letters. We pray for one another. But you know what? There's something that's even more amazing did you know that your brothers and sisters in Christ are not the only ones praying for you? The Son of God himself is praying for you in the middle of your storm. The Son of God lifts you before the Father in your time of great need. He represents you in heaven. If you were in Sunday school, you heard a little bit about that. Witness the fact that before Jesus' death, he said to Peter, listen to these words, and fill in the blank, 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have, what? Prayed for you. I prayed for you. And what did he pray? He prayed that your faith will not fail. And you know what? His faith didn't fail. His faith didn't fail. And Peter, even though he denied the Lord three times, he ended up persevering in the end and became one of the great pillars of the church. My friends, Jesus prays for you. It's part of his work as mediator and intercessor. We get a glimpse of what he, what he prays for, for us, in John chapter 17, which we read just a few moments ago. You want to know what Jesus asks the Father on your behalf? Here's a few. That he would keep us in his name. We were praying about that just for a couple of people this morning. God, keep them in your name. Don't let them drift. Don't let them turn. Don't let them shipwreck. That he would grant us fullness of joy. Also from John 17. All of these are. That he would safeguard us from the evil one that he would sanctify us in his truth, that he would grant us unity with one another and with himself, and permit us to see his glory. How do you pray for one another? I, I tell you, sometimes I listen to my own prayers and I think, i, I got to be able to do better than this. John 17 is a great place to start. In 1 Timothy 2.5, we learn that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Oh, what a comfort to know that Jesus, who created the storm and, and set you upon its waves, now prays for you as you enter the storm. Can I just say, Russ and Deborah, Jesus is praying for you. Frank and Darla, Jesus is praying for you. Cindy and Dennis and Travis, Jesus is praying for you. Pace and Penny and Seth, Jesus is praying for you. Chuck, Jesus is praying for you. Karen, Doug and Sela Helms, Jesus is praying for you the whole Helms family right now. If you doubt, if you doubt that Jesus is praying for you, you need but to read Hebrews 7.25, which reveals that Christ, our high priest, always, listen carefully, always lives to make intercession for you. He always lives to make intercession for you. So as you face the next severe trial on the job or in your marriage or with the kids or with your failing health, remember Christ has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. He is with you and he is praying for you. 
He has promised to be with you. And he is asking the Father to give you things that are far more valuable than healing. You know why I say that? I think God is much more glorified in our illness than he is in our healing. Because when we're healed, we tell the doctors, we've been healed. And they say, yeah, okay. Medicine did that, the doctors did that, the hospital did that. But when you are rejoicing in Jesus Christ, while you are ill, there is no explanation for that. It glorifies God when we rejoice because only God can put that joy in our hearts. Or when you're tempted to give in to the gravitational, full of that, of the, the gravitational pull of that same temptation, remember, Christ is praying for you. When you fall into sin and find yourself in, in the pool of your own guilt and shame, remember, your high priest still stands before the throne of God like a lamb who was slain, interceding for you. He has not given up on you. What a mighty support this is. Jesus Christ prays for you when you suffer. He is personally involved in the storm that he created for your good, and he desires to reveal to you all of these things. And here are some of them, and the main ones that I wanted to point out. Here's what he desires for you, that he would expose the depths of your dependency, the height of his supremacy, and the length to which he will go to cause you to long for the fellowship of Christ and fill you with sovereign joy. And this is only the calm before the storm. We're just getting started. Now John takes us another step in this narrative. Here the calm before the storm evaporates before Chaos in the storm. Verse 18. As Jesus continues to pray, the boat was reaching the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The sea is not very big. It's only a few miles in either direction. And verse 19 tells us they were about three or three and a half miles out to sea. In verse 48 of Mark we learn that from the mountain, Jesus could see his men straining at the oars. And the reason they were straining at the oars was because the wind had come up and was blowing against them. I got thinking this morning about how God uses wind. He used it to part the Red Sea. He used it to dry up the Jordan River. And he's using it now to, to uh, oppose the progress of the men that he loves. He is determined to show them their impotence, their inability. And so in the middle of the storm, the disciples were rendered helpless, alone, and probably doomed in their minds. After all, the last time they faced such a storm, Jesus was in the boat and he made everything go away. Now Jesus is far away and presumably unable to see them and unable to help them, despite all the miracles that he had performed by his mighty power, 
It never occurred to them that they could call to him for help. Why? Because they weren't thinking about him as God. They were thinking of him as the promised prophet. They were thinking of him as, a, as, as the Messiah in human form, moving in human ways. They had not grasped that he is God. They still did not think of him as the almighty creator. Yes, they had a high view of Jesus the man, but they still didn't comprehend his divine supremacy. They needed to learn that Jesus was not merely a prophet and miracle worker. He is El Roy, the God who sees. Jesus didn't have any problem seeing the disciples out in the middle of the storm. Darkness and light are alike to him. The God who sees. Think of 1 Peter 3, 12, where we read, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ear is attentive to their cries. And Jesus himself said this, Not a single sparrow will fall to the ground without the Father's care. And you, Jesus said, are worth more than many sparrows. What, do you think I'm caring about sparrows and whether they get eaten by hawks? And I don't care about you? Oh, you of little faith. The disciples needed to learn, no matter how bad things appeared, the Lord is their keeper. The Lord does not slumber or sleep. He's never in a situation where he's not fully in the know of what your need is. Mark says this scene took place during the fourth watch of the night. And that's helpful for us to see the kind of agony that they were experiencing. The, the night was divided into four watches or shifts. The fourth watch was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., generally speaking, it ended at dawn. And because of that, I think we can safely assume, since it had just turned dark when they started this trip, and here they were at the end of the, the fourth watch of the night, or at least in the fourth watch of the night, they may have been rowing for eight hours or more. And here's the point. Jesus waited a long time. He let them row. He let them suffer. He waited a long time before he came to them, just as he waited until Lazarus had been dead for four days before he came to Bethany. That was not accidental. That was absolutely intentional. It was purposeful. In both cases... He could have come much sooner than he did. And in both cases, he could have performed the miracle without actually being present, just as he had done with the centurion's servant. But in his infinite wisdom, he allowed those whom he loved to reach the extremity of their need before he came. He wanted them to be absolutely convinced there is nothing they could do. 
The word straining here relative to their pulling on the oars could be translated tortured. And Jesus' men were experiencing not, not only physical pain from the work, but mental distress as well. And once again, they found themselves in a situation that was beyond them. They were insufficient. They were helpless. They were absolutely dependent upon the Lord. And that's exactly where Jesus wanted them. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. They had not learned that. I'll give you an illustration from this morning. It was time for the elders to pray, and I'm always the last one to pray. I'm not sure why I'm always the last one to pray, but that's the way the lineup is on Sunday mornings. And, and I'm sitting there looking at my Bible, and I'm listening to people pray, and I thought, Lord, I don't, I don't have anything to say. I don't, I don't know how to pray this morning. And I opened my mouth and started praying. And I began praying things I had not thought to pray, and I'm not sure I ever prayed it in those ways before. The Lord wants us dependent. He wants us weak so that his power will be evident when his power comes. Now let's ask a relevant question here. Here they are suffering. They think they're doomed. They're about to drown. They're in the middle of the, of the lake, in the middle of the dark, in the middle of a storm. How did they get there? How did these men find themselves in such a predicament? You want to know the answer? They found themselves in this storm because they obeyed. They obeyed the Lord. I mean, what a lesson this is to the church. Our happy, slappy evangelicalism where everything is light and happy. We're all about the Lord providing for our desires, keeping us healthy and wealthy and satisfied. And does it occur to us that often God wants us to suffer? Imagine what disobedience would have gotten these men that night. A full stomach, perhaps? A warm bed in someone's home? An opportunity to dazzle their hosts with astounding stories of what it's like to be a, a fellow minister with Jesus Christ? It was obedience that put them in this dangerous and frightening situation. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that God has a plan for your suffering. God has a plan. Adoniram Judson, who was a, in the 1800s, he was a missionary to Burma. And his story is fascinating in, at many levels, but mostly on how much he suffered. And he wrote this, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial 
was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I would not have survived my accumulated sufferings. Let me read that again. If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. If you submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ in faithful obedience, you will expose yourself to a variety of sorrows. Your loyalty to Christ, your commitment to biblical living, your hatred of sin, your love of righteousness will make you vulnerable to things which the uncommitted soul will never experience. And the other thing they will never experience is the divine joy that comes only to those who suffer. There's yet another mighty blow this is to the prosperity gospel. Name it, claim it. That kind of thinking cannot be reconciled with this text that teaches about Jesus' role in the believer's suffering. Listen, beloved, the deepest joys of the Christian life do not come in the carefree absence of life storms, but in the uncontrollable hardships and troubles of God-ordained circumstances that bring you to the end of your self-sufficiency so that you can behold Christ's supremacy. God is 10,000 times more committed to your Christ-likeness than he is to your comfort. Suffering is not a roadblock to your ministry. It is the substance of your ministry. It is your ministry that you have right now, where you are and what you're experiencing. It is your ministry so that there will be no missing the reality that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from men. Oh, how the American church has missed this precious reality. Perhaps the deepest problem in the American variety of Christianity is, in our day anyway, that we have forgotten what life is all about. We've been tricked into believing that it's all about us, when in fact it's not about us, it's all about God. It's all about God. God's purpose for creating humanity was not so humanity would be self-fulfilled and healthy and comfortable, but so that God's own infinite person and character and worth would be glorified, exalted, and delighted in by those whom he has created. And when all of that is working, when all of that is happening, God gets all the glory, and we get incalculable joy. The purpose of our existence is to live in such a way that proclaims, upholds, and relishes the glory of God and invites all people everywhere to join us in the joyful worship of Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you that this is what Jesus is doing in this text. This passage is not about how you should prepare for future suffering. It is not a passage about how to respond to your trials. It is about what God does 
in and to you so that the person of Christ and his work of the gospel might be exalted. This text is all about God. Jesus is trying to teach his men about God. And specifically, he's trying to teach them, I am. I am. So we've seen in this narrative the calm before the storm, the chaos in the storm. Now John introduces us to the captain of the storm. So in the middle of the Sea of Galilee that night, Jesus humbled his men with their helpless inability so that they and we would behold his supremacy, his supremacy, his majesty. In Job 9, 8 through 11, we read, he alone stretches out the heavens and, and treads on the waves of the sea. Feeding the 5,000 was an impressive miracle, but Jesus wanted his men to be absolutely convinced that he is very God, a very God, creator of the heavens and the earth, which he formed by the word of his power. And to accomplish this, he had to do something shocking. And this is not the only shocking thing he did. But this is one of them. Like all of us, we have to be pounded and pounded and pounded. He had to demonstrate that, that, tariff, that, that defying the, the universal law of nature required him to expend absolutely zero effort. And that he does in this story. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of earth. And no one can say, what have you done? No one can hold back his hand. No one can question him. The contrast here, you, you, you kind of step back and try to, in your mind, get a picture of what's going on there in the water. The contrast between Jesus and his disciples is as striking as it is intentional. Twelve men confined to a boat are at the mercy of the wind and the waves. And Jesus, free from the need of a boat, exercises sovereign command over the wind and the waves. It's a vivid, vivid revelation of God's supremacy in bold relief to man's dependency and inability. One of the specific ways Jesus accomplishes this in the story strikes me as somewhat comical and humorous. I wonder if Jesus intended it to be that way. For just a moment, turn back to Mark chapter 6. I want you to see the exact wording here. Verse 48, Mark 6, verse 48. Here's what Mark tells us. Mark 6, 48. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now notice this. And he intended to pass them by. Jesus intended to pass them as he walked on the water. 
Apparently, he, he caught up with the boat in the middle of the sea, and he began walking past it almost as if he hadn't noticed that his 12 dearest friends were out there bobbing in the water thinking they're going to die. I imagine Jesus walking on the water, humming a little tune as he passed, you know. Right? I don't know if you can sing that in Hebrew. Why did he do that? Why did he act as if he was just going to walk past them? Why did he make it look like he was going to not even notice them? Why didn't he just walk right up to the, to the boat and climb in and take charge? Well, it strikes me that perhaps he wanted them to notice that wanted them to notice how absolutely carefree and unconcerned about where he was and upon what upon which he was standing. They couldn't miss it. They couldn't miss it. They are still in danger of dying. And he's walking, he's walking right past them. He was no more afraid of what was under his feet than a child standing on solid ground. He walked around in the middle of the lake outside the boat as if water was what everybody walks on. This Jesus is unbothered by the chaos of the storm. And you know why? Because he is the captain of the storm. Verse 49, Mark 6. We learn that the, how the disciples responded. When they looked up and saw him walking on the waves, they immediately concluded what any superstitious Jewish fisherman would have concluded. It's a ghost. And to make matters worse, the ghost is changing course like a heat-seeking missile and was headed directly toward them. No wonder, Mark says, they began to cry out, is the translation in the English. In the Greek, it literally says, they cried up. Like they stopped looking at the ghost and they started looking to God. He cried up, or another translation would be, they screamed in terror. When Jesus heard their, their cries, their screams, he called out to them, take courage, it is I, it is I, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. You're in your present storm. Jesus is praying for you. He created this storm for you. Don't be afraid. Oh, beloved, can you imagine the relief they must have felt the moment they recognized his voice? John doesn't tell us, but Matthew says that as soon as Peter heard the Lord's voice, spontaneous as he always is, he cried out to Jesus to bid him to walk, walk out on the water with him. And sure enough, Jesus called out to Peter, 
and he too walked on water. This wasn't about Peter, and it wasn't about walking on water. It was about one thing. You need to understand that I am God. This account has always been a favorite story, especially of children in the church, but Jesus orchestrated the whole thing to make one point. He wanted his men to stop thinking of him in shallow terms. Yes, they thought of him as the greatest human being alive on earth ever. But they were still thinking of him in shallow terms in comparison to who he really was and is. If they were going to be used to turn the world upside down after the resurrection, they would have to live with a deep, abiding sense of their own dependency and Jesus' absolute supremacy over all things. Why did Paul live like he lived? Because he believed Jesus is God. Why did the disciples all die a martyr's death willingly, maybe with the exception of John? Because they believed that Jesus is God. What was the original heresies in the church that came upon the church? And questioning whether Jesus is God. Sometimes God's storms in our lives stretch us to the very limits of what we can handle in order that we might realize how utterly dependent we are on his grace and how supreme he is over our circumstances. So if you feel the impulse in the midst of your trial to fall on your face before him with bitter tears pouring out your soul to him, that's exactly what he wants. And it's exactly what you need. And so Jesus walks over to the boat with Peter in tow, climbs in with the other men, and when he did, the wind stopped. They found themselves immediately at the shore. That, that is not the point of the text, except that all of these things have one message. Jesus is God. How did the disciples respond to all of this? Well, Mark says, they were utterly astonished. Again, in the Greek, it says, they lost their senses exceedingly. You can use that with your kids sometimes, moms. <laughs> and why were they astonished? Well, Mark says in, in verse 52, because they had not gained anything from the insight of the loaves, from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And Jesus was doing all these miracles. He was showing them that he was God, and they didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. Jesus fed the 5,000, he fed the 4,000, they're still not getting it? They get in the boat? I mean, why didn't they say, oh, Jesus, we knew you would come. We knew you would come. We were just waiting. We know your promises. We know what your plan is because you've shared it with us. We believe. You know why? Because they didn't believe. They didn't believe the most essential thing that they needed to believe. And that is that Jesus is God. 
He is the son of the father. Think about that for a moment. When Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, and with it fed 5,000 or 20,000 people, he did it in order to show the disciples this one truth. That he is able to do with do whatever he desires to do with the very fabric of the created. That means everything created. You see the news, the new photographs from the latest telescope pointed into oblivion, and there are more galaxies than anyone imagined. And he does with them as he pleases. He's the most incredible artist, the colors and the patterns. And the... By such power, he could meet their every need and fulfill his every promise. He wanted them to learn to believe in him, to trust in him. But as of this point, they had not gotten, they had not gotten the message. They thought the banquet in the wilderness was really a neat miracle that they were probably excited about. The whole experience must have been wonderful, but they didn't get the point. Their hearts were hardened. And some of you listening to my voice right now, you came into this room and your hearts were hardened. You didn't believe in Jesus. You're here because there are pretty girls here or good-looking guys here. You're here because maybe somebody dragged you here. Maybe your mom or dad dragged you here. Can I just tell you, that's not why you're here. God brought you here, and he has a message for you. There is a God, and you are not him. Jesus is God. And your only hope in this, in, in, on the day that you stand before God to give an account, your only hope is to bow. Your only hope is to believe. Your only hope is to throw all of your hope and your trust upon him. You say, well, as a good Calvinist, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the Lord to do something. That's not what the gospel says. It says, believe. Not wait. Believe. Trust him, run to him, fly to him. He says again and again, come to me, come to me, come to me. Stop waiting. Believe. Jesus is God in flesh. And so here's my conclusion, my friends. I think we are so much like the disciples, so slow to learn what Jesus is teaching, so reluctant or at least slow to embrace the reality of who he is. If we did fully embrace the reality of who he is, we would be less fearful in the storm. I'm not saying that we will never struggle with fear. I'm just saying there's no reason for it. I struggle with fear. But I believe there's no reason for it. And believing that there's no reason for it is really helpful. 
like, the, like Job, again, perhaps you need to say the same thing he said. I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, and I repent in dust and ashes. Stop rebelling against his revelation of himself to you. Believe. Beloved, we need to learn that Jesus is behind our struggles. You need to learn that Jesus is behind your struggle, your storm. He rules over them entirely. He ordains them for your good. And he is determined to use them to reveal himself to you in ways that you have never known and joy that you perhaps have never experienced because you're so wrapped up in, in the stuff of this life that there's no time for him. It would appear that the perfect storm broke through the disciples' hardened hearts and achieved the desired result. Matthew tells us an important fact that John leaves out. He writes this, And when they climbed into the boat, the wind, when he climbed into the boat, the wind died, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, this is the Son of God. They got it. They got it. And it changed them forever. Are you facing some kind of some hard and frightening storm right now? Have you considered the possibility that perhaps God has designed this storm, this perfect storm for you? Have you considered the possibility that he is attempting to strengthen your faith or create faith in your heart? If you quit, you miss what he intended to have for you. So stay at the oars of obedience. Persevere against the wind and the waves and wait for God to reveal himself to you in ways that could never have, you could never have known otherwise. He will do it. He will do it. You know how I know? Because he always does. And it's what he's promised. Hudson Taylor, another famous suffering missionary, he wrote this. Not infrequently, our God brings his people to difficulties on purpose that they may come to know him as they could not otherwise do. Then he reveals himself as a very present help in trouble and makes the heart glad indeed at each fresh revelation of a father's faithfulness. We who see so small a part of the sweet issue of trial often feel that we would not for anything have missed them. How much more shall we bless and magnify his name when all the, the hidden things are brought to life? Brought to light. I assume he means in heaven. And so, my dear brother or sister, don't give up. Stay at the oars. Remember, every trial you face is a perfect storm. And it is designed to reveal your dependency and exalt Christ's supremacy and enrich you with sovereign joy.
Let's pray. Lord, I praise you that sometimes you speak through stammering tongues for your glory. I pray, O oh Lord, that these truths would pierce our hearts and kill sin and kill anything that would keep us from knowing you and loving you, knowing the joy of your presence and your ministry to us when we need you. I pray for this church, Lord. Your church is experiencing a kind of suffering. And I pray for them with Jesus that you would keep them unified, that you would protect them from the evil one, and that you would fill them with the joy of their Savior. Father, do it for your glory, and do it for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name.